The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. This is Squawk Box. The headlines this hour. China leads Asian shares higher after U.S. stock markets extend their winning streak as optimism over a Fed rate cut and the U.S.-Mexico deal remains. But President Trump keeps the tariff threat over China, telling CNBC further levies will be imposed if President Xi Jinping doesn't attend this month's G20 meeting. Uh, Mr. Trump also saying Huawei could become part of trade negotiations with Beijing as the Chinese tech firm begins its defense in the UK, answering questions from British lawmakers. Plus the race, I think it's a marathon rather than a sprint, to succeed Theresa May as leader of the UK Conservative Party gathers pace as the final 10, yes, just 10 left, candidates are confirmed ahead of this week's first round vote. At this hour, another suitor bites the dust as ING reportedly walks away from a potential tie-up with Commerce Bank. We'll be live from the Consumer Electronics Show in Shanghai for the taste of the latest tech out of China. And the Golden State Warriors live to fight another day in the NBA Finals, beating the Toronto Raptors in Game 5 of the series. Oh, NBA, eh? I love a bit of uh, baseball. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, the US market's up yesterday. Uh, I don't know anything about American sports. Uh, the US market's up yesterday. I do know a bit about American sports on the markets. We've had a very strong session and set of sessions on the Dow. The Dow was up another 78 points. That's six out of six to the upside. And I'm understanding all kinds of issues, such as the 50-day moving average, that a lot of you techs, uh, you wonks out there, you like to look at that as well. So uh, looking pretty positive on the chart, seven out of seven. Consumer discretionary was leading the Nasdaq, uh, Amazon, of course, a, a key component in the consumer discretionary, uh, moving headily higher, 1% to the upside. Uh, very interesting also looking at the data from yesterday. Now, do you remember I said to you about this time yesterday, when the jobs data is good, people say, um, well, it's backward looking. And when it's bad, like it was on Friday, they say, oh, well, there you go. There's a confirmation. We need to have a rate cut as well. It's amazing how the bias from a market which lives and breathes on cheap money at the moment, and it does, just look at the buybacks, uh, looks at the data in such a discriminatory way. So what do they look at the jolts data from yesterday at? Did you look at the jolts data? I hope you did. The job openings and labor turnover survey. It's very important. It's got hirings. It's got quits. It's got some very, very interesting data and openings. Bearing in mind, we had the appalling data on Friday and it was really bad data. Let's be honest about it. Call it what it was. Bad jobs data yesterday, but uh, on Friday. But the openings in the jolts data yesterday were still pretty much at virtually a record level. The record is 4.8 and they came in at 4.7%. So there are huge numbers of job openings in the US. Hirings rose to 3.9%. Now that's really interesting. I'll just tell you why it's interesting. Because what do you think the average was of 2018? 3.8%. So hirings are a 0.1 of a percent. All right, it's a margin, but higher than the average of 2018. And we're supposed to be seeing an incredibly slowing jobs market. I just want to point out to you that it's ambiguous, the jobs data, okay? It's neither one nor t'other in terms of a slam dunk. And quits 
Now quit, you don't quit your job unless you feel confident you can get another job, yeah? And it kept pretty steady at 2.3%. So openings, uh, hirings, and quits, all pointing to a robust labor market. Just want to point that out to you when you looked at the payroll and you got really gloomy on Friday, okay? All right, let's have a look at the oil market as well. Oil market, a bit of a rally going on here, off the lows. Brent Cruise, 62.47, a WTI, 53.60. We've got a great guest coming up in the last hour of the show talking about weather, asking the question whether oil and its precipitous decline uh, from recent highs had suffered its own Lehman moment. We'll dig into that in the last hour of the show. So you've got to hang around for all three hours today. <laughs> I hope you do anyway. Let's have a look at the Asian markets as well. Really, I mean, I've ignored the big issue so far. And the elephant in the room is trade. Trade in the Fed, I guess, as well. These two twin pillars as well. ASX 200 now up 1.5%. Look at the Shanghai Composite. 1.9% to the good. And people are doing a lot of focusing on now. Seven. Is seven a magic number or not between the US dollar and the renminbi? That is a key question. And the different issues and different tools that can be used in the trade war as well. It's not just about tariffs, despite what anyone will tell you, especially a certain person as well. Nikkei up 0.3 of 1%. Would you like a look at the opening calls? All right, okay, you can have one. Uh, pretty flat to slightly high at the start of trading. Uh, it must be a record. Six days up on the Dow and, and two days where we've had three anchors. Yeah, it's not bad, is it? Yeah. Maybe what we is? can uh, complete a whole week. We'll just have to see. Oh, I think we will. I'm feeling so, pretty optimistic. So I was pretty intrigued um, by the jolt story that you were telling there. The other thing that intrigued me overnight was the fact that Jan Hattias over at Goldman Sachs oh, yeah. doesn't think there's going to be any interest rate cuts this year. I saw that. I saw that. Which uh, will not go down that well with the market that seems to be bouncing on this idea that we will get these interest mm. rate cuts. Behind the curve or ahead of the curve when you talk about some of those recommendations on rates. I mean, I know some of the banks had to move very swiftly to catch up with the Fed and the rest of the markets recently. They were like, you know, no change until the end of 2020 and then they changed assumptions to, to this year. So uh, ask the question again whether he's going to be playing catch-up down the track or whether he's going to be a market leader. Let's, uh, let's talk about the uh, the tariff stuff and then we'll, we'll weave the Fed back into the story, I think, because it is critical for where the markets go from here. President Trump has ratcheted up tensions with China, telling CNBC he will immediately impose additional tariffs if President President Xi doesn't attend the G20 summit in Japan. Leaders of G20 countries will meet in Osaka on June 28th and 29th, where Presidents Trump and Xi are expected to hold talks. Speaking to CNBC, the US president hailed the use of tariffs. Tariffs are a beautiful thing when you're the piggy bank, when you have all the money. Everyone's trying to get our money. China and the China deal is going to work out. You know why? Because of tariffs. Because right now China is getting absolutely decimated by companies that are leaving China, going to other countries, including our own, because they don't want to pay the tariffs. And China will, in my opinion, based on a lot of facts and a lot of knowledge, China's going to make a deal because they're going to have to make a deal. Well, are they going to have to make a deal? And if they do, what will that deal look like? Daryl Liu is with us, Head of Portfolio Management at REYL Singapore. Daryl, good morning to you and good welcome morning. to our studio here in London. Um, is there going to be a deal and how long is it going to take to negotiate? Well, I think that that's, the, that's the big issue. That's the elephant in the room, right? Um, I think basically that the, the two presidents will probably meet at the G20 meeting. Um, it's, they, they seem to get along personally you know they seem to get along um but unfortunately uh, there are obviously a lot of different factions that they have to to, to appeal to and to have address within their respective parties um so it looks likely that i think the best case scenario would be that the both both presidents meet 
and then they agree to restart negotiations so again. So what is, when we, I mean, this could go on for some time, all right? This is what you've given us is a holding statement in effect. So what is the right portfolio construction or the right asset to hold while we sit in this uh, uncertainty? Well, I think it's basically creating a diversified portfolio. I think you can't ignore the Chinese market completely. Um, if you look at the Chinese Asia market, for example, it's still one of the top performing markets on a year-to-date basis. But having said that, obviously, last year was a terrible year and it's pretty much a bit of a bounce back this year. Um, but there is earnings growth coming out from the market. And I think in terms of survey data that we're seeing out from China, uh, MNCs are pretty much in a holding pattern as well where, with regard to whether or not to relocate, relocate their manufacturing facilities. Because you think about this, CapEx, you know, it's a five, ten year kind of a turnaround or a planning uh, strategy basis. Uh, they, they want to get some sort of visibility with regard to the trade issues before they actually decide to plant uh, re or relocate their, their, their manufacturing plants outside of uh, China. And what we are seeing here is probably one third are still deciding to, to stay, stay hold. Uh, one third is looking to accelerate their move. This is something that they've already planned for, uh, from years ago. Um, and another one third is really undecided as to, as to what, what's going to happen. And I think anecdotally as well, uh, where I'm based in Singapore, I've just been talking to friends within the industry. Um, linking a bit to the Huawei situation right now because obviously Huawei is a major uh, telecom equipment provider uh, in, in, in many parts of the world. Um, and when they are sitting down to, to make their CapEx uh, decision making, uh, what, whether or not to upgrade their, their telco equipment and who to actually outsource it to, they are in a stuck in a really, really tough position because Huawei is the, the, the most effective from a cost perspective. Um, but if these issues are going to come back again and again and again, you've got issues about whether or not they're going to be able to sustain right. uh, the, the servicing and maintenance down the road. So, yeah. And that's the problem, isn't it? Uh, the uncertainty that continues. And Huawei yes. aside, whether it's wrapped up in a trade deal or not, there seems to be a market investors waiting for a trade resolution to see whether we should be risk on, whether that change, changes the narrative on investment, but also around CapEx decisions, whether businesses should also reinvest. Something that jumped out to me overnight was what Trump said about Mexico. Mm. which is effectively that uh, the tariff threat could be reinstated if Mexico's Congress did not ratify another part of the Migration Pact. This is telling us, that we, even though we've got a big North American free trade mm -hmm. deal, deal that needs to be ratified, there was an agreement now on migration that there's still a potential threat. Yep. So even if there is a resolution with China, why would anyone take that at face value now? Uh, that, that's precisely the point here. I don't think we'll get a complete resolution at all because the world has changed now. Um, and uh, if you look at what, what President Trump has been doing, he's been weaponizing a lot of different things. Tariffs is one. You know, down the road, uh, I, I actually think that he could probably weaponize the US dollar at some stage as well. Um, so the, the world has changed and we've got to deal with this uncertainty. Um, that's not to say that there isn't investment opportunities out there because there are going to be winners and losers in, in a trade war. But you know, I think the, the market has got to come, come to the understanding that the, the world is different from the last, last period when the WTO and international trade, sub integrated supply chains, we might be moving to a kind of a, a world where you have different supply chains, a supply chain for the West perhaps and a supply chain for China. Um, I think we've got to accept that. Darren, I have a question to you about uh, portfolio management in broader Asia as well, on the back of this as well. But we'll come to that in a few moments' time, if we may. Uh, just to fill in a few more gaps, Chinese firm Huawei, which Darren's been talking about, has been dragged into the tech war, but there appears to be confusion in the Trump administration over whether the phone maker poses a national security threat. Speaking in to CNBC in Japan, uh, the US Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin uh, said Huawei is a national security risk. However, when the president 
uh, called into CNBC. He said Huawei's issues could be resolved as part of a trade deal with Beijing. See it as a threat. At the same time, it could be very well that we do something with respect to Huawei as part of our trade negotiation with China. China very much wants to make a deal. They want to make a deal much more than I do. But we'll see what happens. Look, I don't mind taking in billions of dollars. You know, the 3.2 we had in the first quarter, a lot of people said we picked up one point because of all the tariffs that we're taking in from China. And just remember, they're charging us tariffs. Meantime, Huawei's global cybersecurity and privacy officer, John Suffolk, has appeared before British MPs to answer questions on the security of the company's equipment. Elizabeth has been listening into some of the hearings. Just give us a sense of what's transpired and what that means about whether the UK is going to be open to Huawei or not at this point. Yeah, that's right. So John Suffolk getting grilled yesterday in this hearing in front of UK lawmakers yesterday. This comes against the backdrop of the UK trying to decide what role Huawei will play in building out these 5G networks. So that was the focus of the hearing was security of these networks. Is Huawei a credible, uh, you know, builder? Can it build this out or should they rely on other infrastructure players here? In general, the sense was very, very heated. And the idea was that the lawmakers were questioning him on whether um, Huawei would comply with the Chinese law that allegedly forces a company to share intelligence if it, Beijing requests it. Here was his response as to how the company would reply if that happened. We're quite clear and it's quite proven we're an independent company. No one can put us under pressure. We've made it very clear, regardless of who the country would be, if we were to be put under any pressure by any country that we felt was wrong, we would prefer to close the business. So Huawei's global cybersecurity and privacy officer kind of sticking with the company line there that they would not provide information to the Chinese government, denying that it would ever engage in any form of spying. British lawmakers didn't completely buy it. They said this is a law and we're not sure how you would get around this. So kind of a debate there. I will say there was no clear resolution as to which way they're, direct, they're leading in, in terms of letting this Huawei into the country. If we think about the, the history for the UK and Huawei, I mean, BT was one of the first partnerships that Huawei had. So there's been a journey with these two companies together, which I think has sort of explained why there has been a position in the UK to stick with the Chinese company, not necessarily in the United States. So there must be a level of trust that's been built up for, you know, after, what, 15 years of business together. That's right. And that was, that was a point that he continued to make. You know, we have a precedent here. We already work with your mobile operators in this country. We we don't necessarily, we, there's no evidence, you know, Huawei continues to say there's no evidence that we've engaged in this. However, at the same time, there is this cybersecurity report that's been issued since 2010 here in the UK evaluating the security risk that Huawei poses, and there continues to be a significant threat according to that report. Now, that report specifically points to weaknesses in Huawei's equipment and in its, in its software. It's not necessarily tied to Chinese state interference. And that's sort of an important distinction in that it's more about kind of this equipment and how it's made. Maybe it's a little bit shoddy, but not necessarily because of spying risks. And so there's this continuous kind of push-pull about how much is this about, you know, the political, the geopolitical threat, and how much is it about Chinese equipment in general and Huawei's Can general relationship. Can about the, the equipment and the quality of it? Because it is also considered fairly high quality when you compare it to some of the rivals, and particularly for the cost as well. I think one of the issues has been how quickly the company has grown uh, and where the security requirements are now at globally, that uh, whether 
or it's a, an Ericsson, or it's a, it's a Nokia, or it's a Huawei. There is a need for the regulation to be here and for the companies to jump even higher than that regulation. So things have just changed, haven't they? And that's where some of the gaps might exist between Huawei and other companies. And one of the, you know, the, the executives in this company often say we're able to keep up faster with these changes than any of the other providers. And that's why mobile carriers are continuing to turn to us because we have the best technology at, the, at often a lower cost. Now, it's unclear necessarily with 5G. We haven't really seen these networks in action fully fledged. We've only seen, you know, test trials here. So it's hard to know exactly how that will play out with Huawei's equipment or with any other operator's equipment at this point. But, you know, sticking with the line there that they, they, they continue to be a credible threat at least uh, in front of London. Okay, thank you very much indeed for that. Later today, our U.S. colleagues will be speaking to the Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross and National Economic Council Director Larry Kudlow. Tune in for those interviews, 1300 and 1940 CET. A couple of items uh, for your diary for the day. Uh, UK unemployment expected to hold steady at 3.8% in April. That is a 45-year low, but a continued slowdown is forecast in wage growth in the US. Producer price inflation is seen lower on the back of falling energy prices. Still to come, we're going to talk uh, CES. We are in Shanghai for the latest tech offerings from the Consumer Electronics Show. Stand by for that. Plus, and if you just can't get enough of Squawk Box, be sure to tune into our very own podcast. Head to CNBC.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast to have a listen and download today's episode. For our listeners out there, stick around for some more. Huawei says its uh, target of becoming the world's largest smartphone maker will take longer than expected. In a speech at CES, a top executive uh, said the US-sanctioned tech firm had hoped to achieve that goal by the fourth quarter of this year, but that this was now unlikely. So who better to send to the uh, CES in Shanghai than our very Asian, very own Arjun. Good morning to you, Arjun. How are you, my friend? Good morning, Steve. Yes, all is well over here. And that story came out of CES early today. Xiao Yang, one of the top executives at Huawei's consumer division, speaking here um, early today. Of course, he didn't give any reasons behind why Huawei uh, might not uh, really uh, make it to the top this year. But there's a lot of problems, of course, dogging the company uh, right now. But um, semiconductors have really come into the fore right now. It's been a key industry, particularly around the Huawei story, because they're facing being cut off from access to U.S. tech. I've got a, a very interesting guest with me because speak a little bit about the global semiconductor space and that's Lung Chu. He's the president of Semi China, a body that represents the global semiconductor supply chain uh, industry uh, globally. Now Lung, I want to just get your, your thoughts right now yes. on your outlook for the semiconductor industry for the rest of the year, just given of course some of the uh, macroeconomic okay. factors that have come into play this year between sure. the US and China. Sure. Okay, so after the last two years of significant growth in the industry, both in double digits, the revenue of the whole industry reached the 470 billion last year, right? But this year we're seeing some slowing down as a result of three major factors. You know, one is the memory cycle, you know, which price goes up and down. Second is the uh, slowdown in the smartphone, which is the largest uh, segment of the uh, semiconductor consumption. And the third one is the, uh, the inventory adjustment. So we're going to see about 5%, you know, to maybe maybe 3 to 8% of uh, slowdown this year. This is the uh, consensus from the industry. However, going forward, uh, we are very optimistic and positive about the future growth. 
and with the demand you know, coming from these uh, smart applications, uh, as we see on the show floor today, <laughs> all these uh, smart gadgets, right? And also enabled by the core technology of AI and the 5G. So we are positive about the future industry growth. Now, I want to talk about the future of the industry because there are many uh, industry insiders and experts who watch this space very closely, suggesting that there may be somewhat of a shift in the way the semiconductor market goes forward. You've had, of course, countries like the US, Taiwan, uh, Japan, South Korea, typically very strong in semiconductors. China has not really been at the forefront when it comes to semiconductors, but we've seen a company like Huawei being put on the US blacklist. It means they've faced uh, restrictions to US technology. Does that and other potential um, uh, factors like other companies being cut off from US technology actually mean China might start to develop its own semiconductor industry going forward now? Very good question. Uh, as we talk about this 470 billion of a global revenue, right? About 40% of that is consumed in China. So China is the largest semiconductor consumption market, right? Which is not surprising because China is the largest cons consumption market for electronic products. But out of that 400, you know, out of that, you know, around 200 billion of uh, revenue semiconductor in China. Only 13% can be supplied locally, right? So which means this is a great opportunity for global companies as well as local companies to develop, you know, business in China. And do you feel that China could get to a point where it's able to uh, completely wean itself off American technology and actually become one of the major players in semiconductors? Well, China has been making significant progress in the, in the last few years. However, it is still way behind the global leaders, you know, in, in these uh, typically four segments, whether that's in design, manufacturing, uh, packaging and test, or equipment material. They are all behind from anywhere from one to three generations, right? So, so that's why I think uh, we need to have more, uh, I guess, investment. We see more investment in China, right? However, I think we still believe, as an association representing the whole industry, we believe the industry grows, and we're all focuses on industry, right? And we believe in these uh, major principles, and we like to have, you know, to use it to promote the industry, such as the uh, the free market, okay, open, oh, uh, uh, free market, and win-win uh, collaboration and also the IP, IP protection, which is the foundation for industry to grow. Great, look, thank you very much for, for joining me today. Right, thank you. Uh, that was Long Chu, the president of SemiChina there, giving us an insight into the state of the semiconductor market right now, and perhaps the way it could change in the future with the participation of China. Guys, back to you. Loving your work, uh, Arjun. Thank you very much indeed for that. Right, Daryl Liu, who is the head of portfolio management at uh, REYL Singapore, joins us again now. Uh, Daryl, my question for you, is regardless of the trade war, are there countries in Asia that one can invest in because they're going to benefit regardless? We've talked a lot about One Belt and Road and uh, alternative sources of trade partners for the Chinese and alternative sources of trade partners for the US. I'm just wondering if there is a slam dunk obvious set of countries that we should be investing in. People always talk about the Vietnams of this world. Yep. 
Well, Vietnam is the one that's number one on a lot of analyst lists. Yeah. You know, um, the 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 risk there is that obviously if it becomes so huge, I was that say, it seems a very inflated trade at the moment. Yeah. Um, well, the the market hasn't gone up that much on a year-to-date basis. I think right. it's up something like five to six percent. Okay. You know, valuations are still okay for for the Vietnamese market. But my my concern there is that if the Vietnamese Vietnamese exports become so big that it becomes a target for Trump. Then it's going to get targeted as well, right? I I was talking about this yesterday, this theory of trade diversion, which a lot of economists have focused on here. And you would anticipate that Vietnam, Malaysia, Thailand and all these quite competitive economies would be beneficiaries from any lost trade through China. Um, My issue is actually is, uh, and this has been raised by a few of the people that have been tweeting this morning, are they just rebadging Chinese products that pass through Vietnam? They put in a final stitch, they add a screw, and then it goes into the containers and they ship it. Is that going on instead? Well, I think that's the problem here. How do you actually evaluate this? You know, in terms of value added, you know, how can you how can you actually calculate like this is twenty five percent value added? Or let's say in, done in Singapore, done in Thailand. You know, where's the bulk of it is actually done in another country. I think that when it comes to auditing that, it's going to be quite difficult, but it may be necessary down the road because uh, you've got to look at what, how many percentage of your product, for example, is made in one country or the other. And I think linked to that is the, this US uh, Export Controls Reform Act, um, the fact that they're, going to, they're saying that if 25% of your product or service comes from the US, you're still targeted, right? So I think that, that that's an issue down the road where you've got to look at actually breaking up your, your product mm. and see how much percentage of that comes from respective countries. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.